Welcome to the Development Policy Center podcast. I'm Magdalena Rojas. This podcast is a recording of the recent Deaf Policy event, Challenges and Opportunities for Women in Papua New Guinea. At the event, we heard from two prominent female professionals from PNG, Evia Koisen and Emma Wuer, speaking about their own experiences and sharing their ideas of what can be done to increase women's participation in the workforce, tertiary education, and more widely. Stephanie Copus Campbell chaired the proceedings. If I can start by acknowledging and celebrating the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, past and present. And good afternoon, a few familiar faces and a few new ones. My name is Stephanie Copus Campbell. Um, I have um, previously been with the government's aid program, including two postings to the wonderful Papua New Guinea. And I'm now working for Harold Mitchell, and we proudly um, provide funding to the Development Policy Centre. I was delighted Stephen's team sent us our six-monthly report the other day, and I was absolutely delighted to see the progress that's been made and the outreach, the engagement, the influence. It's really met our expectations and exceeded them on what a policy Institute should be doing, and again, we're really proud and delighted to be funding it. So it's with pleasure that I'm here today, both the subject matter um, as well as organising the funding for the Institute. It's also a subject matter dear to my heart. I've had many years in the development game, and most of us will know working on development, there are no magic bullets to development, so it's a long process. But if you could perhaps pick two... I would suggest education and investing in women. If you think about it, women obviously 50% of the population, um, about 40% of the global workforce, um, 40% of the global agricultural workforce, around 50% of uni students are women. And so it makes a heck of a lot of sense in terms of productivity gains to invest in 50% of the population and a good portion of the workforce. It also certainly makes sense if you look statistically at improved outcomes for future generations and it makes sense in terms of ensuring that we have a broad range of representation for a community and for a population. And I think that going into communities and sitting down and asking the men and women separately what they want for their communities. And the men would usually in PNG come up with you know, roads and other means of agriculture, and the women would always first say they want health, they want education for their kids. And if you take that and then transpose that to a nation as a whole, you can see where that representation is really important. So it's certainly important to invest in women because they are part of the solution. Sadly, they're also, when you look at development, part of the problem, given that women and girls make up the majority of the world's poor. So by improving a lot for women and girls, we are doing um, a lot for development as a whole, both in terms of the problem and in terms of the solution. So today, we're going to hear experience of what it's like to be a woman in Papua New Guinea, what both the challenges are, and more importantly, um, what the opportunities are, and I guess thinking through how we can support that through the work that we do and our engagement with the aid program. Um, I'm also delighted to be, along with Stephen, um, supporting the 
development, which we've now kicked off of the first ever integrated um, crisis support center for Papua New Guinean women and children in Lai. And I think we're just opening our doors now after particularly Stephen and his team um, and our colleagues in Papua New Guinea really hard work getting that going. We have um, $3 million from the Australian government to kick that off. and. We're working hard to have that um, supplemented by philanthropic funding, so that's also very, very exciting. And I, I know I was um, um, privileged enough to have a quick chat with the foreign minister on Wednesday night, and it was one of the things she also mentioned as you know something that she's very proud of as well, being able to support. So that was great to have that confirmation. Um, with that, we will kick off, and I think everyone does have a copy of Who's Who, including all of our biographers. Is that correct? Let's go through a, a long or a short introduction. Did everyone get a copy of backgrounds? And no, okay. Well, if not, I'll do a more formal introduction. Um, so it's my pleasure to first start to invite Emma um, Wu to come to the podium. Um, Emma's the principal legal officer for human rights in the PNG Office of the Public Solicitor. She completed her law degree in 2006, and she graduated with honors in 2007 from the University of Papua New Guinea. Um, she has a wide range of experience, um, including working closely with the human rights track of the National Court of Justice of PNG, um, and working um, closely with a number of women's rights programs as well. So with that, Emma, if I could ask you to come and share your perspectives. Thank you. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, <laughs> This is my first time actually to give a lecture. If I had known that I'd be here, maybe I, I would have trialed it at the University of Papua New Guinea before I came. It's more comfortable in a courtroom. Um, but thank you. Um, <laughs> it is it is more comfortable in a courtroom, yes, for me. Um, <laughs> thank you. Firstly, I would like to um, just say a short uh, word of thanks to the International Commission of Jurists um, and Amnesty International for um, making this trip possible for myself and my colleague, um, Ms. Koisen. And I would also like to say thank you to the Public Solicitor of Papua New Guinea, Mr. Fraser Pitwit, for allowing me to take this trip um, and, and be here with you. Um, this afternoon, I would be doing a short presentation. Unfortunately, I don't have anything to put up, but I'll be speaking on the um, challenges and opportunities for women in Papua New Guinea and from my experience as a legal practitioner back at home in Papua New Guinea. Um, from my short biography, um, I have been practicing for six years. Um, in Papua New Guinea, uh, we, we do both uh, barrister work as well as solicitor work. So um, we don't really have that difference. I understand in Australia it's quite different, but we do both. Um, and so for three years I've been a defense counsel working in the criminal practice, and for the last three years I've been doing human rights uh, with our office. Um, the Public Solicitor's Office it's an office which is similar to most of the legal aid that you have. It's usually um, free legal assistance that we provide to the minority of, um, the majority, sorry, of Papua New Guineans who cannot afford um, private lawyers' assistance. And um, um, 
just by saying that you can understand the load of work and the amount of work that we do. Our work varies from criminal um, defense lawyering to civil, general um, civil litigation. And um, in order to um, understand where we are coming from as female um, lawyers, professionals, uh, generally in PNG, one would have to understand the cultural background of um, where we are coming from. Um, for instance, I'm from the highlands of PNG, and um, Ms. Koisten is from the coastal part of PNG. And um, we have patrilineal society as well as matrilineal society, and therefore the, um, um, the trend of um, domestic violence or um, male dominance is different um, in different societies. And um, I'll be speaking from the aspect where I'm coming from as a Highlander and also um, my experience in the legal profession back at home. Firstly, the um, first challenge that I see we face is that Papua New Guineans are still of the um, mind setting that um, men are more smarter than women and men are more intelligent than women. And um, women, um, even though you're a lawyer, if, uh, for instance, Ms. Koisen has a private law firm, and if you were to turn up at their office, you wouldn't see a lot of clients there. But if you were to turn up at a uh, male, a male um, colleague's um, office, you would see a lot of clients there. And I ask, why is that so? And um, the conclusion that I have come to is that um, our people still believe that men are more smarter than women, no matter what profession you are in. That um, that mindset, mindset, of, uh, sorry, is still um, there. Um, and that I would um, tie that to our cultural um, background from where we come from. Um, <clears throat> Uh, back at home, um, I'm sure you are all aware that um, men, you know, women look up to men for everything, and I'm sure it's it's the same here. You might have um, similar issues that um, most of the jobs and everything is uh, male-dominated, and um, that, I believe, is the perception that everyone has, that men are more smarter than women. Um, that is... One of the great challenges that I have uh, every time when walking into a courtroom and you are you have a case against a uh, your your friend on the other side is a male, you already abused by correspondences before you even enter the courtroom. You get a le letter saying, um, "Do you even know what you're talking about? Do you, have you read your laws? You know?" And um, how do I? How do I um, counter that? I just tell them I'll see you in court. You know that's something. <laughs> yes, I just get tired of you know male you know telling us you know you don't know what you're doing, and that's my usual response to them. I'll just see you in court and let the judge decide. So um, that's one of the main challenges um, that I that I face while practicing as a lawyer in Papua New Guinea. Um, the other one is. Um, Domestic violence is a um, major concern. Um, one would think that just you being a lawyer, um, 
you think that males are going to fear you because you, you know the law and you're going to quickly, you know, run to court and get a restraining order and all that. Um, I can say that men, men don't, they don't care whether you're a lawyer or whoever you are. As long as you're a woman, they can still um, hit you or, you know, domestic violence, it occurs um, even in the professional world out there. And by um, saying that, um, briefly I can say that um, I was also a victim of, you know, domestic violence. And um, um, they also use not only physical violence, but with today's, you know, we have phones and all that. It's it's gone to that area of um, using, um, it's emotional um, and also psychological. They they. That's what they do. That's and educated men are doing that, even back at home, professionals, and um, that is a great challenge because it has a lot of impact on on your development, um, on the output output in your work, what you do. Um, it has a it has a great impact. Uh, that's from my own uh, personal experience, and also from my colleagues who have also come to me um, asking for help for restraining orders against their husbands or partners. Um, and that's still going on today in PNG. Um, I believe uh, one of the ways in which we can um, meet some of these challenges is through education, um, from right down from the um, primary level to the high schools and also the university. Um, I do not believe that we would see much change during our time, but it, it's worth trying for our future um, generation, uh, for our children and grandchildren to be um, informed of um, um, the rights of women and um, to properly educate them. Um, uh, the other thing I see in uh, combating this is through awareness. And um, we have been getting a lot of um, help from the Australian government to do a lot of awareness in our country and provinces um, in our country to um, tackle issues like domestic violence, um, human rights, and all that. Our office is, we have a section that is purely involved in just um, bringing awareness to our people. Um, and um, I think the other thing I would I would like to see happening um, is to have a women lawyers association back at home. Um, currently, we don't have that. Uh, we only have one law society, both uh, males and females, and it's not really that vocal. So I would like to see just women standing up and um, um, forming an association and being vocal and advocate for uh, for the rights of women, both professional and generally women as a whole. So I think that's about it. That's, that's as far as I can go briefly about um, my experience and what I'd like to share with you all this afternoon. Thank you. We might come back to questions later, and I already have a few, so we'll um, do that. Um, so our next speaker, um, I've 
delighted to invite to the podium is um, Viewer Kosen. We've already heard some of your challenges already, um, and it would be good also to expand on those opportunities. So I would like to invite you to speak now. Thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. I'd like to first thank you um, for the opportunity to be able to speak to all of you today as a private practitioner back home. I'd like to acknowledge Maeve Collins, who was a lecturer at UPNG. I recognize uh, a number of people here, Papua New Guineans. Um, hello to you all. Uh, some of us were at uni around the same time. So, uh, Yes, I, I have been practicing law for a number of years, over uh, about 20 years. Um, I've worked in government and private uh, and just recently started my own law firm and it's been a very interesting journey. Um, Papua New Guinea is a land of the unexpected as, as people say because we have so much diversity in culture. We are a nation among, in a nation. We are different nations, about 300 different nations in one nation. So the complexities are not as easy as uh, people from outside would think uh, they are. So Emma has correctly pointed out that how we treat women depends on the cultures that we come from. And I'm from the coastal culture, so we treat women a little bit different to how you would treat them in other cultures. So um, how we um, address issues on, on the same issues, such as domestic violence and all those things, are different. For instance, in the coastal cultures, this is one thing that uh, I would like to say at the start before we get down to the questions that are going to be answered, um, or the topic to discuss, is that um, it needs to be recognized that in some of our cultures, we actually um, respect our women and we raise them up and we give them elevation and status. Um, and that depends on, uh, first they start off as someone's sister when they're growing up, and so the brother respects his sister. And then when, when she gets married, she's re respected as a wife. Um, and when she, because she's viewed as the key to rearing the next generation, she's respected more as a mother, and some respect to the extent where she will not be called by her name, but she will be called, her name will be reserved as too sacred and she will just be called the mother of the firstborn child. Um, and then when she becomes a grandmother, she almost becomes a matriarch. So I wanted to say that because there is a misinformation out there about how much domestic violence there is in Papua New Guinea. We have to look at it from a cultural context only in some cultures, yes, it is quite extreme. But in some cultures, we respect our women and um, we give them the honor that they respect and deserve because they are the ones who build a nation in terms of raising the next generation and bearing children. I just wanted to say that. Um, my experience as a woman lawyer in Papua New Guinea, one word, you have to be tough. Um, because it's a male-dominated society, just like Emma said, when you go into the courtroom, there's a male judge and a male colleague on the other side most of the time. 
You have to be prepared. You have to work twice as hard to do your submissions. Make sure your case law is on the point. Make sure you don't make any mistakes because you've already been taunted before you get into the courtroom that you don't know anything because you're a woman. Um, it depends on where you come from, the male side. If you're from a certain culture and you're treated as an object rather than a human being, they'll give it to you to the third degree. But if you are from a culture which is a little bit more respectful to women, they'll hint it to you. <laughs> <laughs> One experience I'd just like to share with you, being a woman lawyer. Before I, um, went, I went to do a case, and I didn't know my colleague on the other side, so I stuck my hand out to shake his hand. And he looked at me up and down and shook his head and walked off. And then I still didn't get it, so I went and sent him an email. And I said, I don't know where your office is. It's too far out somewhere in the residential area, so can you tell me how to find you? The response, are you dumb? Can you read a map? Get to the phone book and find it. My response was, you have just made me angry. <laughs> I do not respect you as a colleague and I will not accept your documents for service, and you can send them to my pigeonhole in the registry. Do not expect me to be your friend when I get to the courtroom. <laughs> so that's one experience. So all throughout the years, you have to be tough. Uh, the judge is also a man, and that bias is there. So when you get into the courtroom, you have to. You have to be very, very well prepared. Don't make a mistake. <laughs> it will be picked on and expanded, even though it's not the issue or merit in the case. So that's how tough it is. Um, it's good because it makes you sharper. Those are the challenges working as a lawyer. The other challenge that I face is protecting other women. Because of the extent of violence in the country among women, perpetrated against women, and there's only a few women lawyers in private practice, I get mostly women um, coming to me, and they are battered wives or battered girlfriends. Once or twice, it's been a, um, you have to, because counseling is not very well set up in our country, you turn out to be the counselor, you absorb their fears, you absorb their, um, what they're going through, you, you have to understand it before you set in the legal issues and fight for their legal rights. So it is tough. But that uh, challenge in itself, we have to find a window of opportunity. So the window of opportunity come, came along in a number of uh, spheres. And one of them was becoming, putting my hands up to becoming the first president of the Women Business Chamber in Papua New Guinea. Through that chamber, we are now setting up mentoring programs to mentor our younger generation of women coming up and to teach those of us who are already mature adults and women who are older to reach back and hold the hands of the ones who are coming up so that we can break the cycle of violence and we can stand up strong together. How, how, do we, 
how do we address um, the idea of getting more women into tertiary institutions and into into workforce? I think Emma has already answered that question. It's by through education. Um, from my own experience, I came from a background where my parents were not formally educated, and I, I found it very difficult to get to where I am. I face so many challenges. For Emma, she's from a younger generation. Her parents and her family had some education. It was easier for her. So it just goes to show. Education is so important. If you educate, for instance, now I'm educated. My daughter's one's an accountant, another one's just finished senior high school. So it makes all the difference, education. Um, where should it start from preschool? Um, we need to send, make more opportunities available for our women to start going to school. I don't want to get political, <laughs> political here, but the government needs to also have gender-sensitized policies. Um, and the education department needs major, major rehaul from the secondary um, education department to the Office of Higher Education. For that reason, I have put up my hands and I'm a commissioner on the Office of Higher Education trying to see how we can change the curriculum of our children, trying to see where we have gone wrong in the last 30 years or so, and changing the way in which we are teaching even our curriculums to a level where we are now teaching subjects that are going to help our women and our men as young boys and small kids to start appreciating their women. I think that that's the bottom line. That's my opinion. I haven't done any research on it, but from practice. Um, tertiary education for women more widely comes back to um, what I've just covered. Also, government needs to be proactive. Sorry, I'm getting political. <laughs> uh, the government needs to be more proactive. In the last five years or so, budget has been going down to the district levels, but where is that budget going into education? We have to see it. So, you know, those are challenges that needs, need to be addressed at a more political level. But as a, as a family person and as an individual, how can we contribute to our, our women getting into tertiary institutions? Send them to school. That's a simple answer. But in order for them to be sent to school, you've got to educate their parents so their parents know. I speak from, a, I speak from experience. My father was a, a person who came from a society where they do not even smack their children. And they do not even lay a hand on their wives. That is unheard of. My mother, on the other hand, came from a very strong patrilineal society where she was taught corporal discipline. And she disciplined me. <laughs> and that's why I'm where I am today. But she didn't know anything about the girls had to go to school too. It was the boys. I had three brothers. They all went to school. I was supposed to finish in grade 10 and get married. And because of some divine intervention, I was able to leave home. My father was away at work and my mother fell ill. I took the opportunity to go to. First of all, it had to be a place where I had to be locked up at about nine o'clock because roll call had to be taken because 
I'm a girl that comes from a Papuan culture where I must be a good girl for marriage. So I went to a nursing school, did three years in nursing. I was blessed enough to have an American mentor, lecturer, a nursing lady, a nurse educator, Alice Whitaker, I'll never forget her name, who told me that I was wasting my brains at nursing school. And by the time I was 21, and so I went into uni. That's the only way I, I got into uni. Imagine all the other girls whose parents are not educated and the struggles. They don't even get to uni. They're out there in the garden or fishing. But I got here only by chance, by divine intervention. So I can't express it. I can't over-express it. It's so important to educate people. The other thing is that we women have to, have to also cater for each other. We have to help each other. If we are to see that in working, women, participation in the workforce, in education, we have to help each other. We have not, this is my experience, as a young practicing lawyer and coming up, I saw that I was alone. I didn't have any help because other women lawyers were too busy fighting their own fights as well like me and we didn't have a common place where we could help each other and talk about those issues. And how true it is of people outside the legal profession, women, other professions, it must be the same. So I think we need to change that. We need to start realizing that we need each other and we need to reach out as we go up and bring up the one that's coming up behind us. That's very important. It's a very, uh, it happens within families and cultural setting, but it doesn't happen outside of there. And we need to break that so that the nation grows and the women in the nation rather than our little own cultural groups grow. Um, I might have gone over time. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there's lots of questions too. So. Yeah. Okay, I'll leave it there then. Thank you. And I should also note, and she said in introduction, that you're putting your money where your mouth is because she's now president of the um, Chamber of the Women's Chamber of Commerce, and it'd be good to hear a bit more about that in a moment too. What that's all about. So, come a seat, or come on up. But I might kick off because one question I kept asking myself in both of your stories. I mean, you're facing incredible challenges, and I think if I had to wake up every day and be into a courtroom or to a job and it was that perception that I had to deal with. Where do you get your confidence? Where do you get your resilience, your ability to just fight through it? Because you're both very strong and you've both pushed through it. And I just wonder, I mean, you talked about uh, a mentor maybe in your nursing school that had an impact on you, but maybe for both of you, we'll start with you. Now, where did that come from? How do you... How do you fight back and push in such a difficult environment? Yeah, thank you for that question. Um, I'm blessed to be in an office where it's not just me. I also have male colleagues as well, as well as female. And so um, I get my support from my male colleagues. If it's a male, then I try to, you know, I brief them about the case and I get their views about, you know, how they think, you know, whether I'm in the right place or whether I'm doing the right thing. And I also see my post about it, who is a male. And um, if they say, you, you're okay, then, you know, I, I'm sure that I'm okay. And um, I get that confidence from my male colleagues again, yeah, if I'm going up. 
with someone, you know, who's not that yeah, male as well. Did you have a supportive family to get you through school and into university? Yes, for me, I, I, I was lucky enough to um, have a supportive family. So, yeah, they were really supportive. Thank you. And what about you? Did you get that drive and confidence from? From home. Uh, my father, like I said, it was a balance. Because my father was uh, very, uh, maybe he loved his daughters too much. <laughs> so anything we wanted, which he thought was good for us, he supported. It was my mother who was the disciplinarian, so it balanced. So I, I, saw, I got a good balance and I learned to face challenges because my mother gave me so much challenge. And <laughs> I won't go into that. <laughs> and, uh, and then later, I, and also I must acknowledge my school teachers and the period in which the country was when I went to school was just after the, just before independence. We had so many expatriate teachers. I must acknowledge them. They are the ones who, I am, there's Mavis Eaton, she was my English teacher. Uh, Jeff Simpson, who continues to live in Papua New Guinea, uh, uh, who was my grade two teacher. Um, oh, I'm trying to think of the others. Uh, there were Papua New Guinean teachers as well. And in, they, they t really cared. They cared. And they are the ones who pushed. When they saw that you could do well, mm. they pushed. We, we, have, we had something that they don't have anymore in school called guidance classes. And when we'd go in there, they would teach us about what subjects you are strong in and where you should focus to go, mm. which they don't have anymore. That's why I'm so interested in education. Yeah because that's what we're trying to bring back in the curriculum. But that's where I got my strength from, the teachers. They, they were very, very caring people. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's, um, that's a, another really strong message for education. Um, <laughs> yes, question. And if you could just say your name and ask them, that'd be great. Uh, Melissa Demian. I'm at the State Society of Governance in Melanesia, a group here at ANU. Um, thank you so much for coming and for your presentations. Um, I noticed that in both of your presentations, you've, you've emphasized quite rightly the role of education, um, particularly, uh, I mean, all the way through, but particularly at primary and secondary level, um, in uh, changing, I don't know, perspectives on gender and PNG. Um, the, thing, the thing that's worrying me, though, is that all, all, the, all the countervailing messages that both uh, young Papua New Guinean men and women are getting um, outside of the schoolroom, um, two examples that come to mind are their churches, um, and the internet. Um, some, not all, uh, uh, some, 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 I mean, there's lots and lots of, I think probably most people in this room know that there are many, many different churches operating in, in PNG. It's a very strongly Christian country. Um, some of those churches are, are sending out fairly progressive messages about gender, and some of them are not. Um, and you get in, in, a, in a lot of the sort of um, so, so, some of the, some of, some of the churches that are coming into PNG, especially from Australia and the U.S., are preaching very conservative views of gender and especially of marriage. Um, and you can see this coming out in, say, the, the letters columns in newspapers. You know, a woman it is. You know, the Bible says that a woman must cleave to her husband and do everything that uh, that he says. They're getting that from their pastors. 
So it's also about changing the messages that the churches are sending out because they are going to <coughs> confound any educational efforts that might be happening in the schools. Um, and then there's the internet. We all know the internet hates women. Right? I mean, if you if you want, well, it does. I mean, it, th this is this is where you get uh, uh, the, 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 the the nastiest harassment, some of the, the, the most gruesome images of you know what what relations in, between men and women might look like in somebody's fantasy. Um, and you know, anybody can now go, certainly in the towns in PNG, can go online and see these images and get these messages that uh, that 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 uh, women are not human. Um, and so, any kind of I'd, I'd be interested in hearing, you know, how you would how you would combat this, right? Because just having these messages in schools isn't going to be enough. Um, if you if you actually want to get the message out about you know, gender equity, it's going to have to have to happen from the pulpit, and it's going to have to happen online somehow as well. Okay, thank you. We might take just two more questions, and then we'll answer a few in um, together. Yep. Yes, I'm David Naylor. I'm the administrator of the South Pacific Lawyers Association. Um, you both, uh, I've got a whole lot of things I want to talk about, but I won't. Um, um, you both mentioned issues with colleagues in the legal profession, um, with disrespect, and the two examples that, that were given really amount to professional, uh, if not misconduct, then conduct unbecoming legal practitioner. Uh, have you lodged complaints, or do you think lodging complaints against practitioners would be worthwhile. I mean, I, I know how dire the complaint system is uh, for the, the Law Society and Section Committee, but have you lodged complaints about that conduct? I might just take one more and then we'll come back. I think it's a good search. Sure. Oh. One more question before we go to. Uh, I just wanted to ask the, on the positive side, because anyone who knows me knows that's what I think about. You mentioned. Um, some of your colleagues helping you. Now, I was sitting here thinking and thinking that what you both were talking about, which was delightful, was like it was 30 years ago. No change. But every now and again, in a village or somewhere, there'd be two old men who'd suddenly say, no, we want to do this, we want to do that, who'd come to the support of the women. Now, I'm just wondering, you mentioned this, Does it? Is it increasing? the number of men who are helping because there were men's groups trying to work against it 30 years ago or is it decreasing? What do you think? kick up from there. At the village level? Were you, t were you, were you asking from the, from the village level or in town? Well, or all, overall? All overall. <laughs> well, from my experiencing it is changing. From my experience it is changing. It's moving at a very slow pace but it's surely moving forward. Yes. I mean, I agree with Avia. From my view, yeah, yes. it's changing. Yeah. Because when I first started practice, I, I speak from the legal practice mm -hmm. point of view. Uh, I drive by and see a woman being bashed on the road. Emma also agrees with me. Uh, there was one time when I forgot that I am also a woman, and I stopped on the middle, in the middle of the road and told the woman to get in my car. I don't see that anymore. And because they say to you, you, just go to the nearest police station, you know, but the police station won't have a truck. They won't have transport. So meanwhile, the woman is getting bashed. What do you do? So those, those were um, indications of still that disrespect there. 
lately in the newspapers, when a woman was getting bashed, which is rare, on the road, a man was actually walking up and telling the guy to stop. That's a sign of improvement. So yes, it has improved. And have either of you lodged complaints? Uh, the Law Society is not... <laughs> I was speaking to Bob this morning. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I'm stopping, because I don't want to say anything derogatory about the Law Society. <laughs> I think I get more results by dealing with it directly. Sounds you know? It, so it's dealt with faster there and then, and I, I dish out the... <laughs> sure. I tell them what I think about them, and I'm happy. Because <laughs> if I give it to the Law Society, it'll stay for months, and it'll go somewhere, end up, that paper will end up lost somewhere. And I'll still be waiting and wasting my time going there when I could be helping other people in the courtroom. That, that's something that we're, we're, we're hoping to help them fix as it happens. Yeah. Um, I think that will take some time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> in terms of... Uh, in, in terms of that, I mean, clearly, you can deal with it directly and that, that gets the problem that resolves it more quickly than not. But from a professional regulatory standpoint, from a perspective of uh, discipline within the legal profession yeah. and professional standards, what is occurring is not good. Um, it's, it's, it's disrespectful if it's coming from the bench as well. That's also a, a huge issue. Um, are you aware of any previous attempts to establish a women law association or a women lawyers committee within the law society? And just as a follow-up, would you know anybody who would volunteer to be chair of such a committee if Sir Kina's arm could be twisted? Is LCA going to fund that? Um, funding a committee of the PNG Law Society. Well, I mean, would they be prepared to initiate to support at those early stages, a women's law society, for example, because I mean that's. We probably wouldn't support a separate society, but I'd, I'd have to go back. No, to but within. But yeah. a, a, a committee um, through the South Pacific Lawyers Association um, certainly would. But um, I'm interested to hear. Can I ask that quickly, and then we'll get to the internet and the church. Um, I haven't heard about it. That's why I I thought about it that it would be best to have a an association, purely women, 100% women. Um, I mean, if that's possible, you know, I mean, we would like to have that, but maybe I might speak to you afterwards, yeah, and get more information from you, yeah, about mm -hmm. that. But I haven't heard about um, any women lawyers standing up to, you know, um, start an organization or association for women lawyers in PNG. A number of years ago, yes. I think several years ago, yeah, but not recently. And then just back to this question on the, the role of the church, and certainly the church plays an incredible role in education as well, as well as the role of the internet. Do you have any reflections on that? <laughs> the internet's yeah. been a massive change in yeah. PNG and across the world, obviously. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, the role of the church is... Uh, I grew up in a fairly Christian home. Um, yes, we were taught those those uh, levels of where where women were in terms of their you know family and head of the head of family and all that. And uh, recently, there may have been those those churches that have come in, but on the whole, I have not experienced myself uh, that type of discrimination. Um, there was a very healthy debate by another uh, lawyer 
who is also a Christian and I some years ago, and we legalized the <laughs> we um we argued that if the doctrine of the Bible says that you do not associate with a disbeliever who does not follow the principle, and there is a verse in the Bible that says that a man should love his wife just like he loves his own body. And if a man does not do that, he is a disbeliever because he is not observing those covenants and therefore she has a right to divorce him. That's, that's a ground. That's, that, and because the Bible says do not yoke yourself with disbelievers. He, by breaching that covenant, is a disbeliever. You as a woman are, dis are qualified to divorce him. I mean, that, so, that's, yeah, there you go. <laughs> that's how we, we argued it uh, from that point of view. Uh, but uh, for churches, I have to say, to, I'll be honest with you, that I, I haven't experienced that extreme thing where they say, women, you have to observe your husband no matter what, because I don't know where that church is from, but it's... The U.S. It will. I haven't uh, heard about them yet. <laughs> well, I think that's also another really an, an yeah. important point. I think, you know, on the one hand, there's a lot of opportunity for discrimination and abuse of women, but then I was sitting next to this young Indonesian woman the other day at a lunch, and she mm -hmm. was telling me all about how the internet has really changed her life for positive, and she's connected with other women all over the world, mm -hmm. and there's this incredible debate, and it's really opened her eyes. And So I don't know, what do you think the role of internet for, you know, women and for PNG has been... Recently, is it overall positive or overall negative for women in Papua New Guinea? Um, I think internet has caused a lot of problems for marriages recently in Papua New Guinea with Facebook and all that. Um, we actually receive a lot of victims, like females, coming into our office, and when you get instructions from them, it all goes back to phones and Facebook and stuff like that. So um, um, a lot of women get their phones. You know, the husbands get the phones mm -hmm. off from them. So I would not think that the internet would be the way to go for now. Uh, but I think more awareness, more awareness, um, and yeah, maybe having a dialogue with churches, those extreme, yeah, mm -hmm. that would be the way to go for PNG at the moment. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Any questions? Just a very simple question. How many? Women lawyers are there in Papua New Guinea. Good question. <laughs> <laughs> That's why it's, it would be good to have a women's association. <laughs> 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 yeah. I, I, private practice at 844 in Council Rolls as a 2011. And in law school at UPNG, is it equal? But it only represents 29% of the total legal profession. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And anomalously uh, in PNG, in most countries in the region, uh, women tend to be overrepresented in government roles for, for various reasons, conditions, um, and so forth. Uh, but in PNG, it's interesting that we were actually, it goes the other way for government practice. And you actually see uh, the numbers fall in terms of representation in government, particularly relative to, to other countries, which is fascinating. Right. Another question Can you see in the future? that there might be a female judge 
There is already one. Yes. There's two. Two. There's two. Do you have a question? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just wanted to see, sorry, I'm Ellen Kulumu from State Society and Governance in Malaysia at the ANU. I just wanted to see the level of trust and confidence that you know you sort of see within the your practices. So what, do you see more women or do you see more men, both, both of you, and the kind of services that they request from you both? Uh, when I first started, women, or mostly women, uh, and of course it's harder, you know the culture, um, you can't go and drink with your mates, that's unheard of. Um, so you just have to work. I, I never advertised. What I did was I just put out very good work, and from that work, people came by word of mouth. I now have men coming to my office by word of mouth. It took eight years. Um, is your question like general or is it related to like uh, victims coming to the office for assistance? Yes, the, the kind of clients that you have. Do you have more women or do you have more men coming? Okay, um, we have more women at the public solicitor's office. Um, for men, I had only one case for the last six years. So I had only one client coming in asking for assistance. He was beaten up by a woman. But um, other than that, yeah, just women. In terms of uh, domestic violence, in my, in my experience, you are now seeing men being uh, abused. I, I'm starting to see that uh, it's going the other way too now, whereas before it was mostly women. Um, there's one or two cases where men are now taking up cases of the <laughs> assault and uh, domestic violence against a woman. So. There another, was another question at back? Yeah. Um, so again, it's related to Ellen's um, question. I'm also with state society and governance. In, and uh, my question is coming from, as a woman, two women lawyers, and experiencing PFG. Um, so when we've got um, women who need help with divorce or inheritance issues is now becoming an issue, um, or domestic violence, and both of you said talked about how a lot of your clients are women in these situations. And what I've seen in PNG is that it's very expensive to access legal support for women who, who want to get both through a divorce. The laws are really, really tough on women. Um, and so a lot of women seeking legal recourse to deal with some of these issues sometimes find it impossible because it's just too expensive and too hard. And then listening to the two of you, it's also, um, if you, a lot of your clients are women, it must affect your business as well. And, and you can't afford to be giving out help. You know, We can all be nice and charitable, but you, at the same time, you as women lawyers have to uh, pay our survive. rent. And so you, you're sort of double whammy with the situation. Yeah. You're women, you attract the women customer, at the same time you've got to the women, yeah. find it really, really expensive. So. Is there a middle ground in Papua New Guinea? Um, so I know Port Moresby, there's a big corporate sector where the big money comes yeah. from the big industries, yeah. and then you've got the really grassroots level where there's the magistrates and all that. And then you've got many, a few people in that middle section, middle class sort of working people who can't afford 
to pay for some legal support, but can't afford the big banks that they have to go to a private loan yeah. company. Any views on whether or not there's emerging middle ground there to help professional women or women who can afford it or families who can afford it, to go out and seek professional legal support? And on that, it's divorce issues are big because when you speak up, and women now, it's not just customary law, it's houses that men and women are investing financially mm -hmm. into it. Women normally get really marginalized. Yep. And another big issue I'm seeing is inheritance issues where sisters and mothers have to contend with uh, the sons or the brothers of the husband. Okay. Maybe I'll answer that um, question. Um, as I said, I briefly introduced that I work with the Public Solicitor's Office. Um, it's a government, uh, but it's set up by our constitution, and uh, we provide free legal service. So, free legal service. So, um, for women who cannot afford private lawyers, we take up their cases. So, we have a number of um, um, cases for divorce, and um, yeah, all that. We, we also deal with, you know, cases such as those, uh, especially when we are going to the higher courts, like the national and supreme courts, we take those up. Um, at the moment, because of the workload that we have and the, um, um, we are short staff, we are not taking up um, cases like um, for restraining orders and all that at the district courts. Um, they get the support from the welfare office and sometimes we just assist them to draft documents for them and they go to um, court themselves, but it's, it's all free. We are paid by the government, so we do it for free. Time for one more question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think for, for, for myself, when women come to me, uh, we talk. Because, of course, they can't afford the legal, my legal fees. So we talk. The administrative work they do, the legal work I do. So I tell them, you do this and this and this to cut down on your legal costs. You go and follow the paper. I'll write it, you take it. Practical, just be practical to help them. Otherwise, where would they go to? You can't turn them away. Um, nobody will do the work, work for them. And pubs hold quite very long list. So when women come with probate issues, or they come with divorce issues, or domestic violence, you, you can't send them away. Where are they gonna go to? So on that basis, we come up, we strike a deal where you do this half of the administrative work for me, come to me when I have to run to court. And in that way, they really cut down on their legal costs. That's one thing. And another thing I have had to start to do to pay my rent uh, is I've, I was blessed with a bit of work from government, and I've had to start a little side company. That pays my rent. So with that money, I've started a company that services my legal firm. So in that way, I'm, I can fall back. It's like a cash cow. You know, it doesn't bring in much money, but it's bringing in money. So that's, those are the practical ways in which I, as a practitioner, I'm helping the women. I don't know about other law firms, but yeah, that's how I address it. So there's a question when you sleep. <laughs> a question when you sleep, then you'll be... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Paul. Just following up on the reflection, Abby, about the role in the Women's Business Chamber. Yes. Any comments on that at all in terms of how it's been going, the mentoring processes? Okay. Uh, we launched in uh, October of last year, so we're fairly new. We are self, not funded at all, 
We're a civil society group. Uh, uh, all of us executives are working on a volunteer basis after looking after our businesses. We're all business people in that uh, uh, group. We have started doing uh, workshops, running workshops. We've started in Mosby. We ran two workshops in Mosby already since October. Uh, we are very fortunate to have the assistance of the American government, not funding, but just uh, when we need to um, move along with logistics or anything like that, we ask them, uh, and they, they just back us up with a couple of things. But we have, uh, since October, we have run about four business SME. Our main target is SME, formal and informal sector. So we've run about uh, four workshops so far in Mosby. The first one being uh, how to register your business, how to register your company, how to... Um, and we are in the process of talking to government. Right, uh, We've written letters out to help, have help desks in the uh, Internal Revenue Commission and in banks and in um, uh, the Investment Promotion Authority Office, particularly <coughs> for women, so that women can go in and be assisted to uh, take their business from informal sector, mm -hmm. if they want to, to, into formal sector, to register so they can grow their <coughs> business. That's one thing we've started. Another thing we've done is uh, we're teaching women how to save uh, from simple passbooks. Uh, because our target is more the informal sector, to educate them, to get themselves, to grow their businesses into uh, you know, more profitable businesses if they want to. Um, for those who want to stay informal, we don't want to push it because it might be uncomfortable. So we just teach them how to save, how to, what to put aside, and how you can grow your business from, a small, from home. Um, it, it is related directly to the issue of domestic violence because the main reason in Papua New Guinea why women get beaten is because they don't have money and they have to rely on the husband who is working. Every fortnight, they're trying to feed their children. The guy is drinking in the pub. So they set up little side tables on the side of roads and sell little stuff so they can make enough money to go home and put the food on the table. So we want to take those women from that roadside table to the next level. Um, we have run a couple of courses on uh, how to access finance. We're talking with the banks. The micro finance companies are very interested and in fact we have done about three breakfasts. When I get back we are going to Medang to hold our first out of the province program. Uh, the Medang women are very interested and they want us to run a program on how to access finance and how to start your business. So that's where we are. Um, I think we might close there because we're right on one thirty. I might just ask a very quick closing question because I've been thinking um, as you've been speaking, who in government is chapping women? I mean, I remember we were there, you know, Carol Kitty did so much and now that she's left, but who, who are the champions? Who's your voice in government and leadership in Papua New Guinea? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't. <laughs> yeah. I can't think of anyone at the moment. Yeah, but I think Carol Kidu was. Yeah, yeah it stopped when Carol went yeah. because the current uh, three women we have are linked to political parties. They are not independent. Carol was independent, mm -hmm. so she's she's she could speak without her mouth being gagged. <laughs> mm -hmm. These current ones, 
I was involved in the 22 women reserve seats. I was on a task force. Terrible. We tried to approach them. We came here on our own steam. You get there in your own steam. You know, that was the answer, the three of them. And when we had the leaders forum, we had a shouting match because they said, you don't know what it's like. And we told them, you know what, girls, you're letting us down. <laughs> so yeah, there's no one there at the moment. But the Minister for Community Development, uh, they, uh, Lujaya Duna, actually apologized for shouting at us when we asked her why she wasn't carrying the 22 women's seats argument into parliament. Um, so yeah. And probably more important is having a few male champions as well. To, yes, yeah. more male champions too. Um, well, we might close there. I, I know you would have also found this just incredibly stimulating and also inspiring um, what two women can do. I mean, I really admire your strength, your resilience, and your commitment to make Papua New Guinea a better place for current and future generations. And certainly, you are making a difference, both of you, and directly, you know, we'll all see changes um, for the better due to your work and commitment. So thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your stories and look forward to um, I think I get the privilege to ask you even more questions and <laughs> write it up for, um, for the centre. So if you want to know more, stay tuned. We'll be getting that up. But um, thank you very much and thank you for coming today. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea and the Pacific, and global development policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all the latest updates or connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening.